Section 10 of Iola Leroy or Shadows Uplifted. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Iola Leroy or Shadows Uplifted by Francis E. W. Harper. Chapter Ten, Shadows in the Home. On the next morning after this conversation, Leroy left for the North to attend the commencement and witness the graduation of his ward. Arriving in Ohio, he immediately repaired to the academy and inquired for the principal. He was shown into the reception room, and in a few moments the principal entered. Good morning said Leroy, rising and advancing towards him. How is my ward this morning? She is well, and has been expecting you. I am glad you came in time for the commencement. She stands among the foremost in her class. I am glad to hear it. Will you send her this? said Leroy, handing the principal a card. The principal took the card, and immediately left the room. Very soon Leroy heard a light step, and looking up, he saw a radiantly beautiful woman approaching him. "'Good morning, Marie,' he said, greeting her cordially, and gazing upon her with unfeigned admiration. "'You are looking very handsome this morning.' "'Do you think so?' she asked, smiling and blushing. "'I am glad you are not disappointed, that you do not feel your money has been spent in vain.' Oh, no, what I have spent on your education has been the best investment I ever made. I hope, said Marie, you may always find it so. But must— Hush, said Leroy, laying his hand playfully on her lips. You are free. I don't want the dialect of slavery to linger on your lips. You must not call me that name again. Why not? because I have a nearer and dearer one by which I wish to be called. Leroy drew her nearer, and whispered in her ear a single word. She started, trembled with emotion, grew pale, and blushed painfully. An awkward silence ensued, when Leroy, pressing her hand, exclaimed, This is the hand that plucked me from the grave, and I am going to retain it as mine. Mine to guard with my care until death us do part. Leroy looked earnestly into her eyes, which fell beneath his ardent gaze. With admirable self-control, while a great joy was thrilling her heart, she bowed her beautiful head and softly repeated, Until death us do part. Leroy knew Southern society too well to expect it to condone his offense against its social customs, or give the least recognition to his wife, however cultured, refined, and charming she might be, if it were known that she had the least infusion of Negro blood in her veins. But he was brave enough to face the consequences of his alliance, and marry the woman who was the choice of his heart, and on whom his affections were centered. After Leroy had left the room, Marie sat a while thinking of the wonderful change that had come over her. Instead of being a lonely slave girl with the fatal dower of beauty 
liable to be bought and sold, exchanged and bartered, she was to be the wife of a wealthy planter, a man in whose honor she could confide, and on whose love she could lean. Very interesting and pleasant were the commencement exercises in which Marie bore an important part. To enlist sympathy for her enslaved race and appear to advantage before Leroy had aroused all her energies. The stimulus of hope, the manly love which was environing her life, brightened her eye and lit up the wonderful beauty of her countenance. During her stay in the North, she had constantly been brought in contact with anti-slavery people. She was not aware that there was so much kindness among the white people of the country until she had tested it in the North. From the anti-slavery people in private life, she had learned some of the noblest lessons of freedom and justice, and had become imbued with their sentiments. Her theme was American civilization, its lights and shadows. Graphically, she portrayed the lights. Faithfully, she showed the shadows of our American civilization. Earnestly and feelingly, she spoke of the blind Samson in our land, who might yet shake the pillars of our great commonwealth. Leroy listened attentively. At times a shadow of annoyance would overspread his face, but it was soon lost in the admiration her earnestness and zeal inspired. Like Esther, pleading for the lives of her people in the oriental courts of a despotic king, she stood before the audience, pleading for those whose lips were sealed, but whose condition appealed to the mercy and justice of the nation. Strong men wiped the moisture from their eyes, and women's hearts throbbed in unison with the strong, brave words that were uttered in behalf of freedom for all and chains for none. Generous applause was freely bestowed, and beautiful bouquets were showered upon her. When it was known that she was to be the wife of her guardian, warm congratulations were given and earnest hopes expressed for the welfare of the lonely girl who nearly all her life had been deprived of a parent's love and care on the eve of starting south leroy procured a license and united his destiny with the young lady whose devotion in the darkest hour had won his love and gratitude in a few days marie returned as mistress to the plantation from which she had gone as a slave but as unholy alliances were common in those days between masters and slaves, no one took especial notice that Marie shared Leroy's life as mistress of his home, and that the family silver and jewelry were in her possession. But Leroy, happy in his choice, attended to the interests of his plantation, and found companionship in his books and in the society of his wife. A few male companions visited him occasionally, admired the magnificent beauty of his wife, shook their heads, and spoke of him as being very eccentric, but thought his marriage the great mistake of his life. But none of his female friends ever entered his doors when it became known that Marie held the position of mistress of his mansion and presided at his table. But she, sheltered in the warm clasp of loving arms, found her life like a joyous dream. Into that quiet and beautiful home three children were born, unconscious of the doom suspended over their heads. Oh, how glad I am, Marie would often say, 
that these children are free. I could never understand how a cultured white man could have his own children enslaved. I can understand how savages fighting with each other could doom their vanquished foes to slavery, but it has always been a puzzle to me how a civilized man could drag his own children, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, down to the position of social outcasts, abject slaves, and political pariahs. But Marie, said Eugene, all men do not treat their illegitimate children in the manner you describe. The last time I was in New Orleans, I met Henri Augustine at the depot, with two beautiful young girls. At first I thought that they were his own children. They resembled him so closely. But afterwards I noticed that they addressed him as Mr. Before we parted, he told me that his wife had taken such a dislike to their mother that she could not bear to see them on the place. At last, weary of her dissatisfaction, he had promised to bring them to New Orleans and sell them. Instead, he was going to Ohio to give them their freedom and make provision for their future. "'What a wrong!' said Marie. "'Who was wronged?' said Leroy in astonishment. "'Everyone in the whole transaction,' answered Marie. "'Your friend wronged himself by sinning against his own soul.' He wronged his wife by arousing her hatred and jealousy through his unfaithfulness. He wronged those children by giving them the status of slaves and outcasts. He wronged their mother by imposing upon her the burdens and cares of maternity without the rights and privileges of a wife. He made her crown of motherhood a circlet of shame. Under other circumstances she might have been an honored wife and happy mother and I do think such men wrong their own legitimate children by transmitting to them a weakened moral fiber. Oh, Marie, you have such an uncomfortable way of putting things. You make me feel that we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and have left undone those things which we ought to have done. If it annoys you, said Marie, I will stop talking. Oh, no, go on said Leroy carelessly, and then he continued more thoughtfully. I know a number of men who have sent such children north and manumitted, educated, and left them valuable legacies. We are all liable to err, and, having done wrong, all we can do is to make reparation. My dear husband, this is a wrong where reparation is impossible. Neither wealth nor education can repair the wrong of a dishonored birth. There are a number of slaves in this section who are servants to their own brothers and sisters, whose fathers have robbed them not simply of liberty, but of the right of being well-born. Do you think these things will last forever? I suppose not. There are some prophets of evil who tell us that the Union is going to dissolve but I know it would puzzle their brains to tell where the crack will begin. I reckon we'll continue to jog along as usual. Cotton fights and cotton conquers for American slavery. Even while Leroy dreamed of safety, the earthquake was cradling its fire. The ground was growing hollow beneath his tread, but his ear was too dull to catch the sound, his vision too blurred to read the signs of the times. Marie, said Leroy, taking up the thread of the discourse, slavery is a word that cuts both ways. 
If it wrongs the Negro, it also curses the white man. But we are in it. And what can we do? Get out of it as quickly as possible. That is easier said than done. I would willingly free every slave on my plantation if I could do so without expatriating them. Some of them have wives and children on other plantations, and to free them is to separate them from their kith and kin. To let them remain here, as a free people, is out of the question. My hands are tied by law and custom. Who tied them? asked Marie. A public opinion whose meshes I cannot break. If the negro is the thrall of his master, we are just as much the thralls of public opinion. Why do you not battle against public opinion if you think it is wrong? Because I have neither the courage of a martyr nor the faith of a saint. And so I drift along trying to make the condition of our slaves as comfortable as I possibly can. I believe there are slaves on this plantation whom the most flattering offers of freedom would not entice away. I do not think, said Marie, that some of you planters understand your own slaves. Lying is said to be the vice of slaves. The more intelligent of them have so learned to veil their feelings that you do not see the undercurrent of discontent beneath their apparent good humor and jollity. The more discontented they are, the more I respect them. To me, a contented slave is an abject creature. I hope that I shall see the day when there will not be a slave in the land. I hate the whole thing from the bottom of my heart. Marie, your northern education has unfitted you for southern life. You are free yourself, and so are our children. Why not let well enough alone? Because I love liberty, not only for myself, but for every human being. Think how dear these children are to me, and then for the thought to be forever haunting me that if you were dead, they could be turned out of doors and divided among your relatives. I sometimes lie awake at night thinking of how there might be a screw loose somewhere, and after all the children and I might be reduced to slavery. Marie, what in the world is the matter with you? Have you had a presentiment of my death? Or, as Uncle Jack says, have you seen it in a vision? No, but I have had such sad forebodings that they almost set me wild. One night I dreamt that you were dead that the lawyers entered the house, seized our property, and remanded us to slavery. I never can be satisfied in the South, with such a possibility hanging over my head. Marie, dear, you are growing nervous. Your imagination is too active. You are left too much alone on this plantation. I hope that, for your own and the children's sake, I will be enabled to arrange our affairs so as to find a home for you where you will not be doomed to the social isolation and ostracism that surround you here. I don't mind the isolation for myself, but the children. You have enjoined silence on me with respect to their connection with the Negro race, but I do not think we can conceal it from them very long. It will not be long before Iola will notice the offishness of girls of her own age, and the scornful glances which, even now, I think, are leveled at her. Yesterday, Harry came crying to me and told me that one of the neighbor's boys had called him nigger. 
A shadow flitted over Leroy's face as he answered somewhat soberly, Oh, Marie, do not meet trouble halfway. I have manumitted you, and the children will follow your condition. I have made you all legatees of my will. Except my cousin Alfred Lorraine, I have only distant relatives whom I scarcely know and who hardly know me. Your cousin Lorraine? Are you sure our interests would be safe in his hands? I think so. I don't think Alfred would do anything dishonorable. He might not with his equals, but how many men would be bound by a sense of honor where the rights of a colored woman are in question? Your cousin was bitterly opposed to our marriage, and I would not trust any important interests in his hands. I do hope that in providing for our future you will make assurance doubly sure. I certainly will, and all that human foresight can do shall be done for you and our children. Oh, said Marie, pressing to her heart a beautiful child of six summers. I think it would almost make me turn over in my grave to know that every grace and charm which this child possesses would only be so much added to her value as an article of merchandise. As Marie released the child from her arms, she looked wonderingly into her mother's face and clung closely to her, as if to find refuge from some unseen evil. Leroy noticed this and sighed unconsciously, as an expression of pain flitted over his face. Now, Marie, he continued, stop tormenting yourself with useless fears. Although with all her faults, I still love the South. I will make arrangements either to live north or go to France. There life will be brighter for us all. Now, Marie, seat yourself at the piano and sing. Sing me the songs that to me were so dear long, long ago. Sing me the songs I delighted to hear long, long ago. As Marie sang, the anxiety faded from her face. A sense of security stole over her, and she sat among her loved ones, a happy wife and mother. What if no one recognized her on that lonely plantation? Her world was nevertheless there. The love and devotion of her husband brightened every avenue of her life, while her children filled her home with music, mirth, and sunshine. Marie had undertaken their education, but she could not give them the culture which comes from the attrition of thought and from contact with the ideas of others. Since her school days, she had read extensively and thought much, and in solitude her thoughts had ripened. But for her children, there were no companions except the young slaves of the plantation, and she dreaded the effect of such intercourse upon their lives and characters. Leroy had always been especially careful to conceal from his children the knowledge of their connection with the Negro race. To Marie, this silence was oppressive. One day she said to him, I see no other way of finishing the education of these children than by sending them to some northern school. I have come, said Leroy, to the same conclusion. We had better take Iola and Harry north and make arrangements for them to spend several years in being educated. Riches take wings to themselves and fly away, but a good education is an investment on which the law can place no attachment. 
as there is a possibility of their origin being discovered, I will find a teacher to whom I can confide our story, and upon whom I can enjoin secrecy. I want them well fitted for any emergency in life. When I discover for what they have the most aptitude, I will give them especial training in that direction. A troubled look passed over the face of Marie, as she hesitatingly said, I am so afraid that you will regret our marriage when you fully realize the complications it brings. No, no, said Leroy tenderly. It is not that I regret our marriage, or feel the least disdain for our children on account of the blood in their veins. But I do not wish them to grow up under the contracting influence of this race prejudice. I do not wish them to feel that they have been born under a proscription from which no valor can redeem them nor that any social advancement or individual development can wipe off the ban which clings to them. No, Marie, let them go north, learn all they can, aspire all they may. The painful knowledge will come all too soon. Do not forestall it. I want them simply to grow up as other children, not being patronized by friends nor disdained by foes. My dear husband, you may be perfectly right. But are you not preparing our children for a fearful awakening? Are you not acting on the plan, after me, the deluge? Not at all, Marie. I want our children to grow up without having their self-respect crushed in the bud. You know that the North is not free from racial prejudice. I know it, said Marie sadly. And I think one of the great mistakes of our civilization is that which makes color and not character a social test. I think so, too, said Leroy. The strongest men and women of a downtrodden race may bare their bosoms to an adverse fate and develop courage in the midst of opposition. But we have no right to subject our children to such crucial tests before their characters are formed. For years, when I lived abroad, I had an opportunity to see and hear of men of African descent who had distinguished themselves and obtained a recognition in European circles, which they never could have gained in this country. I now recall the name of Ira Aldridge, a colored man from New York City, who was covered with princely honors as a successful tragedian. Alexander Dumas was not forced to conceal his origin to succeed as a novelist. When I was in St. Petersburg, I was shown the works of Alexander Sergevich, a Russian poet who was spoken of as the Byron of Russian literature, and reckoned one of the finest poets that Russia has produced in this century. He was also a prominent figure in fashionable society, and yet he was of African lineage. One of his paternal ancestors was a Negro who had been ennobled by Peter the Great, I can't help contrasting the recognition which these men had received with the treatment which has been given to Frederick Douglass and other intelligent colored men in this country. With me, the wonder is not that they have achieved so little, but that they have accomplished so much. No, Marie, we will have our children educated without being subjected to the depressing influences of caste feeling. Perhaps by the time their education is finished, I will be ready to wind up my affairs and take them abroad, where merit and ability will give them entrance into the best circles of art, literature, and science. After this conversation, Leroy and his wife went north, and succeeded in finding a good school for their children. 
In a private interview he confided to the principal the story of the cross in their blood, and, finding him apparently free from racial prejudice, he gladly left the children in his care. Gracie, the youngest child, remained at home, and her mother spared no pains to fit her for the seminary against the time her sister should have finished her education. End of section 10 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista